KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. holidays are upon us, so what better time to think about spirituality? For some of us, movie theaters are like churches. They're places of worship, holy shrines where we sometimes have transcendent experiences. The new Star Wars film The Last Jedi just opened, and it restored my faith in the Force as something spiritual that anyone can tap into. No need for those ridiculous midichlorians that George Lucas described in his prequels. And those prequels? They tested our faith. They represented the dark times that Star Wars fans had to suffer through. We had to deal with questions about why we still believed. But most of us remain true to the Force, even if we question the wisdom of its creator. But our reward has been a new trilogy and a new standalone film that have brought us out of the dark times and into the light. But Star Wars movies are not the only source of spirituality in the movies, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I was raised Catholic, but I must confess, I hadn't been in a church for decades. So when a friend sent me information about a sermon at a Unitarian church and suggested I go, I hesitated. But then I saw the topic of the sermon, horror movies as spiritual practice. And the woman giving the sermon, Catherine Buffington, was a geek like me, but one with a lot more impressive credentials. In addition to making geeky craft projects and engaging in role-playing games, things you might leave off a resume, she has a master's degree in women's studies, where she did research centered around the Japanese feminist movement and modern manga. She's written an interactive fiction novel that combines classic ninja manga and movie tropes, and she teaches popular culture criticism as part of her composition classes at Palomar College. All this led me to put aside my fears and distaste for organized religion, and on October 22nd, I stepped back into a church. I have to admit, I was surprised that instead of traditional hymns, I was treated to a zombie song to open the service. Then, Catherine Buffington began her sermon with this. Horror movies teach us that you never, ever go into the basement alone without a flashlight. Horror movies teach us that if you want to survive, you need to live a virtuous life. Horror movies teach us that you shouldn't buy haunted real estate, no matter how good the deal. Just just don't. Horror movies teach us that you should never, ever split up from the group. Horror movies teach us that evil is an undeniable presence in our lives. And horror movies teach us that fear is a lifelong condition one that must be conquered so it will not consume us. 
Ever since I became a Unitarian Universalist, I've been puzzled by the lack of discourse around topics of fear and evil. Initially, I attributed this desire of many UU congregations to distance themselves from a more traditional fire and brimstone brand of religious discourse. Fear, after all, is often a symbolic tool of the more patriarchal, obey-at-all-costs mindset that some institutions use to cement social conservatism. Fear has taken a front seat in much of our political discussion these days. And fear is a value that is aligned with the sort of political power that we find repugnant. Machiavelli tells us that it's ideal for a leader to both be feared and respected, but in the event that the leader can't have both, fear is the more ideal choice because it is a constant of the human condition. So perhaps it's logical that modern UUs avoid talking about fear and evil and spend our time thinking about how to fight it instead. But constantly fighting a faceless presence or an ideology is tiring. Lately, fear and evil have felt like constant companions. Dealing with them is draining. And this feeling couples with shame. Shame at admitting exhaustion or ignoring the problems that cause fear and doubt. The most important way I've come to deal with the existence of fear and evil is through horror movies. Okay, I was hooked. I wanted to know more, and I wanted to invite her on my podcast to talk more about this notion of horror movies as spiritual practice. But since we met for the interview on the day The Last Jedi opened, I decided we needed to chat just a little bit about Star Wars as spiritual practice. But fear not, no spoilers about the new film. Just Star Wars has been in our pop culture since 1977, and this notion of the Force seems primed for incorporating into spiritual practice. So, Absolutely. And you're a Star Wars fan, so what has this meant for you? Oh, it's, it's such a treat to see that the new films are fantastic. When it comes to spirituality, I had a friend who used to joke with me that she didn't go to church, but every Sunday they watched one of the Star Wars movies. And I always think about that and the way that the uh, the Jedi Order in particular, how their their costumes and their their techniques, as much as we see them in the films, uh, mirrors meditation practice and some Buddhist and Shinto philosophies. Now it draws on mythology from all over the world. And it's a wonderful amalgam of all these things. And when you sit in that theater and you see it for the first time, it's, uh, it's like my heart sings. It's amazing. And I mean, is that something you see that fans kind of incorporate? I mean, after the first trilogy, it felt like there was this real sense that what the force was, was this thing where 
anyone could tap into it, and it had this sense of kind of unlimited potential, but without ignoring the fact that there was also a danger of evil. The Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. Well, there are people who do try to practice the Jedi lifestyle. It's, it's, it is a real thing to them. Um, I think it's a wonderful metaphor that it works so well on so many levels for so many different types of people. If you think about it, it could be a divine force. It could be something innate to human beings or, in this case, all people in the Star Wars galaxy. But the idea that there is a force greater than ourselves, whether it's God or gods, plural, or some some higher plane of reality that we can reach through our own willpower, that's a really salient idea that that dates all the way back to Renaissance humanism, if you want to think of it like that. For me, the first trilogy is the one that I tapped into in terms of this notion of the Force. And I have to say that when the first prequel came out, The Phantom Menace, and they introduced that notion of the midichlorians. I've been wondering, what are midichlorians? Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside your cells, yes. And we are symbionts with them. Symbionts? Life forms living together for mutual advantage. Without the midichlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. It made me go, wait a minute, that's not what I was thinking it was all about. And no. Did that kind of jar it for you a little bit? Definitely. And honestly, uh, like many fans I know, my my ideas that never happened. It was a hiccup. <laughs> it was it was like an outtake that somehow weaseled its way into the film. I don't know. But yeah, that does take away from it in some major way that I think is greatly detrimental to the universe as a whole. I wish, yeah, I wish George Lucas had thought that through. <laughs> A little bit more clearly. I, I, maybe he wanted to make this more firmly science fiction mm-hmm. and a little less of the spiritual, perhaps. But that's, you know, that's the Star Wars universe's great power. Sure, it's science fiction. It's sure it's a space opera. But I think it has so many other elements, you know, spiritual storytelling that pull mm-hmm. from so many spheres that so many people adore and love and that resonate with them. And so by putting it more firmly in that one place... Perhaps. I think that was a fatal, fatal error in some ways. Now, the reason I invited you to come on my podcast was I have probably not stepped into a church since I was married and then divorced decades ago. And I was raised Catholic. So you can't you can't shed that. It's always there. (laughs) And a friend of mine forwarded a notice saying that, oh, there's going to be a talk about Horror movies as spiritual practice at a Unitarian church here in San Diego. And I was, okay, this may be the thing that gets me to step <laughs> foot back into a church. And I did. And so you gave a sermon yes. on this. So how did that come about and, and kind of what motivated you? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for coming back. <laughs> I and Honestly, I was like you for a long time. Um, I... I wasn't raised Catholic, but I was raised Christian, and my parents and I had a huge falling out about it at some point. And for a long time, you know, stepping into a religious building made me feel almost physically ill. I I was 
I felt very alienated from that, even though, you know, there, there were many good things about Christianity in many ways. But um, when I so when I joined the Unitarians, as you know, they're a very progressive denomination. They one of their pitches is like we welcome everyone, agnostics, atheists, people of all religious faith traditions. And so when we joined, I thought, oh, wow, you know, maybe this is a place where people would like to think about the way that I came back to spirituality or any kind of religious thought, which was really through pop culture. Um, I think there were, I think particularly of Six Feet Under um, as a show that made me start thinking about religious practice in a way that I hadn't before as one of, we see one of the characters, main characters, uh, David Fisher, trying to reconcile his sexual, or his sexual identity with his religious identity. What does being a deacon mean so much to you now? It wasn't even a consideration for you a week ago. Look, I know you think it's naive, but I see it as a chance to make a difference. Make the world just a little more tolerant. David, we have our own church in West Hollywood, which means the other churches in the diocese don't have to tolerate us. Frankly, I resent the notion that I need to be tolerated. So what, we should just allow ourselves to be ghettoized? Why do you embrace an organization that doesn't embrace you? The church embraces everyone. Oh yeah, right. Hate the sin, love the sinner? The operative word being hate. What is with you? The other night you said you liked the idea. I had a chance to think. The way that that was written was so meaningful to me. I hadn't ever considered, you know, stepping back into a church, you know, or, or a religious setting in that way. And I started paying attention, you know, in other contexts and wondering, you know, what what messages were what were I was I missing, perhaps? And because, you know, pop culture is my great love in life, you know, in one of the many, actually, but uh, that was where my primary source was. As for the sermon itself, I had become a worship associate, which basically is somebody who helps run the services and, you know, kind of organize things and do the shorter readings at the beginning and the end. And in the summers, we usually have a series of guest speakers so that our minister can take some time to recharge and study and so forth. And I almost as a joke at one point at one of the worship associate meetings said, oh, I'd like to do a talk about horror movies. And our minister's face kind of lit up and she said, that's the best idea. And I said, oh, okay. (laughs) And so it didn't work out. I think by the time I thought of this, we were full for the summer. But then she said, well, why don't you do it in October? It makes sense then. You know, it's close to Halloween. It's fantastic. And we do have a Halloween itself. We have a really lovely Day of the Dead celebration that I enjoy very much. But uh, that's how it came about. Now, you specifically talk about horror movies as spiritual practice. So what was it that made you focus on that genre? Well, as I put it in the sermon, one time back in fires in 2007, you know, this was a time of great stress. I mean, our houses weren't in danger, but, you know, it was scary. And on the Friday morning of the sudden week that we had off work that nobody wanted, my husband turned to me and he said, I can't, I can't take the news anymore. I can't, like, we can't wait around. And I said, well, let's go see a movie. And we went and we saw 30 Days of Night. Not a great film. I love it, but I, I acknowledge that it's not the best of any of anyone. And no offense to 30 Days of Night fans. I've heard the comic is much better. But when we came back from that, my mother said, oh, did you see a movie? And I said, yes. And, I, and you know, she said, what did you see? And I told her, and her jaw dropped, and she looked at me, and she said, why would you see that? 
And thinking about the answer to that question, I began to wonder why had we wanted to see fictional scares when there was real life horror all around us. It had fixed something inside of me and I didn't I guess I hadn't recognized that need until I went and saw it. And so that was the jumping off point. And I've been thinking about it ever since. And yeah, that was really how we got started with that. So what is kind of the fundamental underpinnings of this notion of horror as spiritual practice? What kind of when you sat down to write that sermon... What was kind of the thing that crystallized that said, like, all right, this is the point where I have to start to explain to these people mm-hmm. who may not know anything about the points of reference I'm making? Yeah. I think horror films allow us to deal with fear in an abstract setting where we have a great amount of control. When you're watching at home, you can pause it. You can get up. You can go get snacks. You can turn it off. You can turn on more lights. You can have fewer lights. You can snark at it with your friends. You can do anything. And even when you're in the theater, okay, uh, maybe you went on opening night and it's super crowded, but then you're with a big group of people. And that is some of the most enjoyable movie-going experiences that I think we can ever have, right? That we, we're in there and everyone is feeling the same emotions and people are reacting. And it's, it becomes this primal type of storytelling that we don't get quite as much anymore. I really don't. I mean, Star Wars is a great example of, you know, a collective story that many people are aware of and talk about in great detail. But shorter stories and horror movies in particular, they allow us to have that shared experience of that primal kind of storytelling um, in a very healthy way. And how does that translate into spiritual practice. I mean, most yeah. people think of spiritual practice as, oh, you know, going to church mm-hmm. or participating mm-hmm. in certain kind of organized things as as part of the religious practice yeah. and, and having this sense of morality or, you know, guidelines or rules. So yeah. how, does the, how do those horror movies then translate into yeah. a kind of spiritual practice? Well, obviously, you don't have to sit and meditate. You don't have to, you know, get your rosary out after you watch a horror film. You know, there's nothing. There's it's very much on your own terms, which it appeals to me as a as a person who's I don't want to say recovering, but <laughs> but appeals to me as a person who comes from a deeply rooted place of skepticism. All right, and so for me, the spiritual practice involving horror movies um, involves being close to other people. It involves confronting fears that I have, um, and sometimes I know exactly what they are and going into it. I know, you know, what this is going to be, and I'm going to concentrate on drawing strength from seeing another person overcome those fears. And other times, I don't know, and it surprises me. And there's a there's a wonderful part. I think Jewish tradition emphasizes this a lot, but you have to be comfortable with being made uncomfortable. And there's I, that's what horror movies are meant to do. You are not supposed to be comfortable. And so how you make that into a spiritual practice is really up to you. Usually what I do, you know, I think about it a lot afterwards. I try to write about it. I try to say, what can I learn from that? If I didn't like it, how come? Or if it provokes an extreme emotional reaction into me, I try to to get to a quiet place with that in my mind and examine what was actually happening. And, you know, and if I went and saw it with a bunch of friends, we talk about it, we might laugh about it, we might make fun of parts of it. Um, 
And really, even snarking at something I think has tremendous power. Pointing out ridiculousness in things that frighten us makes them have, you know, less hold on us. And anything that does that is always good. So if we were to look at maybe your conventional or your typical slasher film. On a June night in 1980, Friday the 13th, 12 of her friends were murdered. Why should Friday the 13th, 1981, be any different? Friday the 13th, part two. The body count continues. 14. If you were to look at something like that, are, are you getting a lesson from that? Are, can you find some commandment in them? <laughs> Is there some sense of something that communally we can draw on and, and learn from that experience? Absolutely. So there are two things that happen, I think, in a conventional slasher film. First of all, there is a very black and white morality that usually pervades the whole story. The idea that if you do bad things, you suffer for them. And, you know, viewers are welcome to take away from that what they will. Very often when I think of like slasher films, I think of the old EC horror comics, like Vault of Horror and, you know, the Tales from the Crypt, where we see like this very much if you, this pagan or Wiccan idea that if you do evil, it comes back to you three fold. And so on one hand, there's this very obvious morality lesson for you. But then there's also this collective purging of bad emotions, right? There's, and, you know, Aristotle talks about this in his uh, work on rhetoric, specifically on drama, where he talks about a good drama. And for him, this is Greek tragedy, which has a lot in common with modern slasher films, in my opinion. Uh, not, Not entirely, but quite a lot. But where the there's a sense of a building of unclean thoughts. And then by participating communally in this tragedy, you get to this, this moment of catharsis or purgation where you're able to purge those bad thoughts. And so in a slasher film, typically we have kind of a combination of horror and mystery where, you know, who is the killer? What is his or her motive? Usually his, but sometimes her. Um, you know, if it's a torture porn movie, what diabolical ways will they hurt the characters? How do we feel about those characters? But we usually build towards some kind of resolution. And hopefully at the end of that, I think in a good horror film, we we have some moment of closure that we don't otherwise get. Real life stories aren't that clean. But in a horror film, you have a moment where you're like, okay, it's over now. And it's clear. Or maybe, you know, sometimes filmmakers go for the gotcha ending where jump scare it's not. But even so, you've had that moment of catharsis. And it's it's a really wonderful experience. Now, slasher films are kind of on a simple plane. It's, it's they're, they're not There's not a lot of complexity. You can read things into them. But there, there is this clarity to who's good, yes. who's bad, and very clear responses to what these yes. films are. There's some other science fiction and horror, which it becomes where ideas become a little more complex. One film that you mentioned that you liked is the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! They come from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet. 
bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. Whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. So what does this film say to you? Oh, this film plays on the universal human fear of being the last person or being the only the only one in a group. I love this movie. I love it despite its flaws. It's very much of its time, but it's so beautifully shot. That some of the some of the scenes are so eerily and perfectly composed. And the speeches that the villains give, that the others give, and I, I want to use that other with a capital O, right? The others who've been taken over by the pods and made into these emotionless creatures. One of them has this line about, you know, this town was a, a place that where, where people with problems lived. Then out of the sky came a solution. Seeds drifting through space for years took root in a farmer's field. From the seeds came pods, which have the power to reproduce themselves in the exact likeness of any form of life. So that's how it began. Out of the sky. Your new bodies are growing in there. They're taking you over, cell for cell, atom for atom. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. Where everyone's the same? Exactly. What a world. We're not the last humans left. They'll destroy you. Tomorrow you won't want them to. Tomorrow you'll be one of us. I love Becky. Tomorrow will I feel the same? There's no need for love. No emotion. Then you have no feelings, only the instinct to survive. You can't love or be loved, am I right? You say it as if it were terrible. Believe me, it isn't. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. Love, desire, ambition, faith. Without them, life's so simple. Believe me. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. And there's this wonderful push-pull between that desire we have to not worry about things, to not have those problems, and the fear that by not worrying about those problems, we lose something important in ourselves. That story is just so perfect. And it, I think it's held up well in its retelling, but I really got to say that original is where it's at. And beautiful black and white. It's fantastic. Well, and to me, it gets to a very core fear I have. Maybe it's not specifically spiritual, but the most terrifying thing in mm -hmm. horror is loss of identity. Yes, and absolutely. And that gets right to that issue. <laughs> well, and there's a spiritual side to that, too. We live in a very individualistic society, and for better or for worse, you know, in most cases for better. But the idea then that we could lose what makes us us, what makes us not. I hesitate to use the word special because it's been overused and overdone so much. But what makes us uniquely, our sense of self, is very important. And the idea that losing that is a possibility, a distinct possibility, even a fictional context, is enough to shake a lot of people to their spiritual core. What are you going to do if you are not you 
What if you are part of that hive automaton mind? That's that's very eerie and unfathomable for most of us. Well, and that kind of dovetails into a, a particular kind of horror film I love, which are zombie films. <laughs> they give me panic attacks. <laughs> I have to say, it's, it's very funny that I ended up doing this sermon because I think in many ways I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to horror film. I have a sweet spot, a genre I love. But zombie films, I watched 28 Days Later and it gave me nightmares for weeks afterwards. But I can see what a powerful film it is. You know, it's it's so eerie. All those shots of London mm-hmm. And it, I mean, at first, you know, that that light, that beautiful sunlight they got by shooting, I think they were like at four in the morning or something. Mm-hmm. But to see him completely solitary, wandering through the city, and then the shock of encountering the infected, that scene, that opening scene is just terrifying in so many ways. And yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now see, my terror comes from the from a different perspective on that, which is that loss of identity. And so for me, zombie films epitomize kind of the things I fear the most, which is the combination of the thing, the monster could be someone you knew, Mm -hmm. you know, here's something coming at you that could have been your parents, your kid, your best friend. Oh, yes. And then the other side of that is, if you become a zombie, how aware are you of what you're exactly. doing and how what's your ability to stop what you're doing? And, you know, recently we've had this trend of what's called the self-aware zombie, which are zombies that are kind of know who they are. It started with Bub in oh, Day yes. of the Dead where, yeah. you know, he's kind of getting that he holds a book and suddenly you see like, oh, maybe he's remembering mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what he was. And recently we've had a comic version of that in Warm Bodies. What am I doing with my life? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? All right, it's because I'm dead. I wish I could introduce myself, but I don't remember my name. I think it started with an R. That's all I have left. It's kind of a bummer. I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I mean, we're all dead. This is my best friend. We even have almost conversations sometimes. They call these guys bonies. They'll eat anything with a heartbeat. I mean, I will too, but at least I'm conflicted about it. That, to me, gets to the yes. same kind of core idea as Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Exactly. With. It's, it's a different context, but it's still this notion of it's your body, you look exactly. like you, but you no longer are doing mm-hmm. the things that you would want to have control over. Exactly. And, and you're committing terrible acts of yes. violence to boot, you know, or or things, you know, that we find incredibly taboo, like cannibalism, for instance, that, you know, and like I said, there's there's a lot of violence that Aristotle and his work would, if we could bring him forward in time, I think he would look at horror and say, oh, yeah, this is tragedy, just juxtaposed and updated. There's a another film that doesn't deal with body snatching, but is a film that builds on something that's very key to horror, which is this notion of dread. Yes. And it follows. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you, back in the car. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. It can look like anyone. 
there's only one of it. Help. Help. There's nothing really overt in it, except for maybe the opening scene. The opening scene, yes. Where they, there's a, a, a gruesome bit of violence to kick it off. And then there's really nothing else except the dread of yes. what might happen. Oh, and so how does this play into your spiritual oh, practice? That was fantastic. And I just say that movie was so creepy. And we talk about edge of the seat entertainment. I think that one was I can't take a breath entertainment because I was sitting in the theater and my hands were, were I didn't have white knuckles, but I was gripping the, the arms of the chair real hard. And I had to keep thinking to myself like, okay, breathe, breathe. There's one jump scare in the whole thing. And that's everything else is is all this building, building sense of dread. And it's, oh, it's fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough to anyone who hasn't seen it. It's just wonderful. As for spiritual stuff in that movie, the idea that there is something wrong with you that is passed from person to person, this idea of a contagion. And this metaphor, this can be just about anything. This can be an STI. This could be the wrong kind of ideas or ideologies. This could be vampirism. This can be werewolf stuff. This can be just about anything. The idea that there is something inherently wrong in human contact that could come back to haunt us. But this movie, I thought the catharsis in it was just so intense. And it was a moment when we get to the final confrontation scene where I thought... I thought I was gonna I was gonna pass out. <laughs> it was so intense. That movie was so terrifying that we got home and I told my husband, I said, You need to go look upstairs. And he said, But by the logic of the story, I'm like, Nope. Go look upstairs. You have to check. <laughs> I can't handle it. If there's a tall man in my bedroom, I will freak out. It was yes. But I think the idea that was so potent in that, and the, you know, this is a it's it's obviously sexual contact in this movie that spreads this. But the idea that by doing something and consensually, you know, because both the the main character was doing this of her own free will, out of her own desire, by doing something that that mistake would not be erased. And this delves into a lot of people's anxieties, you know, that, and my own in the past, that one mistake will come back to haunt you. And you can't erase it. You can't go back in time. You can't, you can't undo that particular thing. And by contemplating that and, you know, putting it in that extreme, extreme fictional setting, I think you start examining the idea that, you know, a mistake is that bad and saying to yourself, well, perhaps not. And part of spirituality and part of watching, you know, and horror movies as spiritual practice, conquering your own fears, I think, is one of the greatest things we can do in life because then we can move forward. We can get things done. You free up mental space that was being taken up by anxiety or depression or sad thoughts or or phobias or fear and you have so much more energy to do great things with and so with it follows you have an opportunity to examine a profoundly anxiety making premise and then you know on multiple levels too you know like on a personal on a on a on a person to person level on a political one and then say wait a minute that that automatic thought makes no sense Maybe I don't have to keep thinking that. Or maybe I have to remember that this isn't like some uninvited stranger in my house that's going to try and mess with me, you know, because that thing has no power over me. 
that's one of the greatest things about a film like that, that it gives you that chance. Very few things in life give you that chance. And a lot of people don't reach out and take it. Well, and I think the way that film progresses, because when it starts, you don't really know anything. You you don't even know from the first if it's transmitted sexually or... It's true. It's true. And so that taps into, because I think a lot of people today have this kind of unfocused anxiety where they're not, they they can't point to one thing and say like, I'm only, Mm -hmm. it's, you you know, it's the fires or it's the president or it's the economy. Exactly. There's this kind of unfocused sense of like, oh, things just aren't feeling good. Yeah. And that film allowed these characters to kind of delve into that as they're trying to figure out what it is that is making them experience this sense of dread. That's true. The other thing I liked about that film was that the characters made smart choices for the most part. Sometimes one of the things we mock in a horror film is like people making foolish decisions. I mean, extremely foolish. Or perhaps I would like to say very human decisions because a lot of people cannot leave well enough alone, right? That's that's one of our great, greatest flaws and strengths in one place. But in It Follows, I thought the characters made some very interesting decisions and very ones that were logical. And when they were motivated by fear, I thought, yeah, that's the choice I would make in that situation, too. I'd be terrified and making bad decisions all over the place. And, and communal good. decisions. Yes. Because a lot of it had to do with a lot of times in horror films, you get the let's split up oh, yeah, kind no. of thing. And yeah. this was a lot about... <laughs> These kids getting together and saying, what can we do to help each other? How can we watch over each other and try to prevent this from getting any worse? Yeah. And and for them to even try to confront the monster, when we learn, or I I don't want to say monster, but maybe the force of this thing. Yeah, there's the force again. (laughs) But um, when they finally decide to confront this thing, we get the impression that other people haven't even thought about that. You know, that they're maybe the first to try and and sort out what it is exactly, what its weakness might be. And that's a really fascinating thing. And then, of course, our our parting shot at the end throws some ambiguity into whether or not they have succeeded. But I still adore that movie. I I probably can't handle it again for a while, but I still adore it. That's, That's how I feel about a lot of horror film. It's not something I view over and over again. But maybe more comedic ones, I would. But, you know, it's 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 still a fantastic experience. These films we've talked about so far were American films. And this notion of passing something on comes mm-hmm. up in the Japanese film The Ring, which yes. was wildly popular, based on a manga. Mm-hmm. It had multiple sequels. It inspired, I think there was a Korean version, an yep. American version. The notion is, is that this videotape yes. is the thing that spreads the contagion. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting, and this raises some cultural issues, mm-hmm. is that, and uh, sorry for anybody who hasn't seen the film, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but mm. the choice that's made by a character at one point is this sense of, we need to put it to an end, and she decides to pass this on to somebody who's, like, on their deathbed. And it's this kind of sense of mm-hmm. how do we resolve this in a way yeah. that does the least harm? And it was, like, a different way of thinking, of, of approaching mm-hmm. the problem yes. that I don't think you'd see in an American film. It's a very 
so the first time I ever saw The Ring, it was in Japanese with no subtitles. And my, my language abilities were about... I like to say I was like at a fourth grade reading level, but, you know, I, I could understand a lot. But this movie goes very fast and there's a lot of ambiguous dialogue in it. So we were watching it with a Japanese friend of ours and we kept we would pause about every 20 minutes. And I'd say I would ask her questions. I'd be like, you know, what's going on here? Why is that guy doing that thing? And she would always answer. She would say, I don't know. I didn't read the manga. I don't know. And I'd say, oh, OK. And so I was really mystified for a long time. What? What was the scare factor in this other than, you know, our, our final, the, 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 the monster, you know, other than Sadako, who was undeniably very, very frightening looking. Uh, and it wasn't until years later I was doing some research for in my master's program and I realized that that story was based on an old Japanese folktale, uh, the Yotsuya Kaidan, uh, which has been retold, I think, some amazing number of times. I think it's been retold, I want to say... Oh, at least 40 or 50 times in different film settings. It's pop, you know, it's a popular stage play. It's imagine if a local, you know, a local urban legend like the Jersey Devil or the Chupacabra um, got the big screen treatment like about every five years. Like this is how popular this story is. And you've probably, if you've seen the um, Hawkeye print of the samurai facing off against the lantern, that's that story too. So the idea a samurai has wronged this woman and she depending on the version of the story you read she either kills herself or he kills her and then her spirit does not rest she comes back to haunt him she will not let go and so the idea that this is a very animistic tradition this i think this is very reflective of the shinto tradition as it stands that emotion is so great that it can scar a landscape um, or it can create something permanent that's indiscriminately greater than itself. This explains why we have a cursed videotape. And so I think to some American audiences or people who weren't familiar with this religious practice, they thought, what? You know, why not just not watch the videotape, you know, or why not, you know, and who's passing videotapes around anyway, that kind of thing. But it's it's a wonderful film in that it I think it challenges both your cultural preconceived notions of what's scary and it allows it it allows you know the viewer to kind of think okay this isn't you know how i view horror but there is this idea that's still really potent in another in another context and setting and i just like the way they resolved it again it, yeah. to me it, it seemed like yeah. it was a different cultural take where americans have a lot of like you know kill it destroy it, it. But yeah, this just was end the cycle. This was a way of thinking. Let me think of a way to end the cycle without like hurting others. Yeah, it's true. And it's it true. was it was really uh, yeah. The first ring film was amazing. Now you mentioned this notion of contagion, mm -hmm. but and you mentioned it in relation to vampires. So <laughs> one of your vampire films you like is the Coppola version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I adore that movie. I love how ridiculously over the top it is. I love how the costumes are just in your face. And I love, I love Gary Oldman as Dracula. I think he is having so much fun. Welcome to my home. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart. You will, I 
trust. Excuse me, but I do not join you. But I have already died. And I never drink. Why? I adore him, and I love that they kept a lot of the lines from the novel in there. I even love Keanu as Jonathan Harker. I think he is perfect for that role. <laughs> it's it's really quite entertaining. But yeah, vampires are the ultimate blank slate. They can be whatever you want them to be. Dracula can be colonialism. He can be, you know, uh, like a conquering, like an oppressive force. He can be... Oh, he can be, you know, disease, he can be rape. You know, there's a very sexual dimension of that story, which some movies like to play up, others just kind of ignore. Um, and we look at all our different vampire narratives and the evolution of the vampire. You know, we've gone from, you know, Nosferatu to, I, I hesitate to say, Sparkle Pyre. <laughs> I, I hope that is not a, uh, a, a major stepping stone on our, pro- our progression. But yes, I think that movie... Although the ending is a little a little frustrating, I think that movie really gives the viewer a, an over-the-top invitation to the vampire mythos, and it just keeps keeps being in your face the whole time. And it's ridiculous, and I love it. <laughs> well, and, and Bram Stoker wrote this during the Victorian era, exactly. which was all about repression, and especially yes. repression of sexuality for women. Exactly. So this notion of, a creature like a vampire freeing mm-hmm. you of your inhibitions mm-hmm. was something that, you know, tapped into a particular chord at that time. Absolutely. And when you look when you look at the novel in particular, mm-hmm. I, I there's some really interesting passages, particularly when Stoker is writing from Mina's point of view or Lucy's point of view, and he describes their repulsion at particularly Mina's repulsion at seeing her friend become so open about her sexual desires and very, she uses the word wanton, you know, this this idea that women would actively pursue something is repulsive on apparently too many levels for Stoker and his readers. But uh, one of my favorite parts of Dracula is that at one point when we know that Dracula is in Mina's room and something bad is going on there, the male characters stand around and argue about whether they should go into a lady's room uninvited. <laughs> Because that's important. And in that, you know, in that moment, we see the values of the time magnified against, you know, the horror of the story. And I don't think Stoker set out to be subversive, but I think in that particular scene, he nails it. He just nails it. It's perfect and wonderful. Um, I want to give a plug here. Um, If anyone hasn't checked out Becky Cloonan's illustrated edition of Dracula, you should absolutely look at it. She's a wonderful illustrator, and she brings out the sensuality and the predatory nature of Dracula in her beautiful illustrations. So I can't recommend that book highly enough. And what does a film like this or this notion of vampires, how does that tap into kind of a sense of moral values because mm. uh, it, it's it's trying to tackle because of it, it its origins is are in Victorian era where there's there was this very strong sense mm-hmm. of morality weighing down on people yeah and so how does this kind of play into spiritual practice in the sense of both acknowledging that there are these like moral mm-hmm. values and also suggesting that there's a reason to maybe challenge them well, that's that's oh, I like that question. That's really interesting. Uh, well, two things. Let's see. So, part of the vampire metaphor that I really like is 
toxic people do exist. And identifying them often is a moral imperative to us because we want relationships that are healthy. We don't want, you know, obviously people don't want to end up in a bad situation or have a friendship that turns out to be just like somebody constantly trying to one-up you all the time. And so part of that vampire mythos, there's there's a little sneaky underhanded primer here for don't go with a person who's bad for you. You know, and, and try to identify that person. But people don't make the best decisions. And so then the morality becomes how do we, how do we, if or do we even have an obligation to save people from themselves and the decisions they make? And can we save ourselves from the poor decisions that we make? And the vampire narrative gives us this in almost like in epic terms, because very often a vampire is immortal. And many of them spend their time saying things like, I wish I hadn't done this, but now I'm stuck. Right? Um, you know, think, if you think about Interview with a Vampire, where you have these long-lived vampires who are, you know, a couple of them are really doubting of that decision. They're like, oh, no, if only I hadn't done this. There's a wonderful manga that I, a Japanese comic that I love called Millennium Snow, where the two main characters um, one of them, the boy is a vampire and the girl, the main character is, uh, she has a heart condition and she could die. She very much wants immortality. And he says, this is a curse and I don't want to give it to you. And so even though they are very, very, very attracted to each other, you know, the story plays out with her saying, you know, you could save my life. And him saying, I love you so much. I don't want to, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And both of them trying to come to a place where they can accept that answer from each other. And so from a modern spiritual standpoint, we might say, you know, what are the consequences of our decisions? Obviously, none of us is immortal. None of us has to worry about living forever and getting bored and that kind of thing. But, you know, what if we make a bad decision? How long does it follow us again? And we're back to it follows. But all of these things, you know, swirl around the same idea. You know, human nature is to move forward for better or for worse. And if we make a bad decision, how do we deal with that? You know, who do we ally ourselves with? Who will help us the most going forward? Now, you've brought up mangas a few times, yeah. and you were in Japan for a while. Mangas and anime have always fascinated me because unlike American animation or or it's it's been changing but basically american animation tends to have in their head it's aimed for children yes. and that it's simplified and the message is kind of in the forefront japanese anime and mangas are not specifically aimed only at children they're aimed it's at true. a much broader audience and they tend to be because i ran an anime and manga club in in my son's middle school and what i loved about those is they brought up so much complexity. Yes. And they brought up some really fascinating ideas. And talking about this reminds me of Death Note. Yes, which yes. Which there's a horrible American version out now. Uh, no, but no. Uh, the original yeah. Japanese manga and the, the anime series, this notion of there's a Death Note book where if yes. you write in it, you can you can basically foretell the death of someone. You can say... Yeah, you can and make it happen. You can make it happen. And it can be way in the future or immediate, and you can write specifics. But the thing that's interesting about it is the moral questions yes. it raises. Because one of the characters is 
Well, he's, a, he's the son of a police officer. Yeah, he's the son of the, the officer in charge of investigating all of these mysterious deaths. So he takes the, he finds this notebook and his initial response is what we would have. Like, oh, if we yes. had the ability to ferret out these evil people who are getting away with mm-hmm. murder, literally, mm-hmm. we could do good in the world. It's true. And so that's his starting point. But... But... <laughs> Then he becomes, you know, kind of pumped up with this godlike sense, and it's, well, just somebody who annoys me, maybe. Yeah, that's the problem. The moral questions that that raised, that's not a conventionally horror genre, the death note, but it brings up ideas that are definitely horrific. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing to keep in mind um, about manga and anime is that. Uh, the attitudes that I encountered when I lived there was that it's it's cheap throwaway entertainment. Yes, it's written for adults, or and some of it's obviously written for children. Uh, but many adults, you know, are, are they might read it on the train and they'd throw it out when they were done. I don't think it has the kind of you know following that comics do here in America. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that what's considered inappropriate to share with children is very different in in Asia. Um, I was a little a little flabbergasted by some of the things I saw. Um, one of the horror manga that I really love, though, and that is most definitely not for children, is uh, the work of Jinji Ito. This guy, if he, if we could resurrect H.P. Lovecraft and like make him lose all his racist nonsense, the, these two men together would create a horror manga that would like end the world. It would be it would be so terrifying. We'd, we'd get a heart attack from just looking at it. Uh, but Junji Ito was, I think in his previous work, he was a dental hygienist and he, he came to manga a little bit later. He wasn't he didn't take the usual career path. But he writes these stories and he draws these these things that have to do there's a lot of body horror and he nails body horror. He he knows what makes people squirm. But I think he also explores the horror of conformity or the um, idea that, you know, that in order to be in a homogenous society, you have to lose a part of yourself. And when you start losing that stuff that makes, you know, that, that, that makes you different or that makes you strong, what happens? And so his works, if you haven't checked, if you haven't read them, uh, he's done a lot of short stories. I would start with The Horror of Amigara Fault, which is all understatement. It is all about the pull of a bad decision, a, in this case, a fatal decision, or maybe not a fatal decision. But it's about that that urge that we have to do what we know is incorrect, coupled with, you know, the consequences of conformity. And it's, oh, he's great. And that's floating around the internet. But an animated series of his works is coming out. And I, I am excited and also thinking like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. But he's oh he's creepy and if you if you've seen Uzumaki you've seen his work the spir- the manga called Spiral I think it's translated as Spiral I would say Vertigo almost too but yeah that's a that's a particularly famous work and well worth checking out my God we could speak solely about anime and manga probably, <laughs> yes we there's, could there's another brilliant one that Monster I think was the title I'm familiar with it I haven't read it unfortunately the, the well the the kind of the premise on that is what if you save someone who turns out to be a serial killer? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, I think I haven't – I read it when it first came out and I believe what it was is there was a situation where there was a murder scene oh, and see. a young child and they think the child is one of the oh. victims and they – 
take the person to the hospital, save them, and it turns out that that the kid I think was the killer. But oh whatever my. it turns out is he the the yeah. doctor has saved someone who turns out wow. to do evil things. Wow. And again, you have that moral question yeah. and the thoughts of if you could go back and do it again or exactly. That's what I really love about so much of the Japanese mm-hmm. anime and manga is that it it's raising these questions that mm-hmm. prevent you from making quick, simple decisions. It's like a nice update of the EC horrors, right? <laughs> it's it's and I I love EC, but I, I notice it moves along very quickly. Whereas manga, because of the way it's published mm-hmm. in the format and the serialization, you have more time to explore those issues, and that's that's really nicely done. I love that. Now, the stuff we've been talking about so far has been horror, horror. Yes. But there's some lighthearted horror <laughs> where if you don't want to venture into some really morally complex ground or some gruesome horror, mm-hmm. you could try something like Beetlejuice. Oh, uh, Beetlejuice is the best. It's a horror movie with training wheels. It's it's it has some really frightening images. There's some wonderful practical special effects in it. But I think at its core is just the most loving heart. It's so <laughs> wonderful. This film made a strong impression on me as a child. Um, there's a moment where Lydia Dietz, who's moved into a house that turns out to be haunted, she's very, she's played by Winona Ryder in like full-on goth phase, and she plays this very goth teenager, very disaffected. I am utterly alone. By the time... You read this, I will be gone, having jumped, having vomited off the winter river. And she's been hinting for about half the film how she wants to kill herself. You know, there's, there's her parents are, I think they're very distant. They're, they're kind people, but very self-centered and not, she, and she has issues. But there's a really wonderful moment in that movie that's always stuck with me where the two resident ghosts who she's gotten to know urge her not to commit suicide because death is not that great. What's going on? Beautiful. He told me that if I let him out, he would take me to the other side to find you. No, Lydia, we're dead. I want to be dead, too. No. Lydia. Being dead really doesn't make things any easier. Listen to her on this, Lydia. This is something we know a lot about. That heart has always stuck with me. That's just such a, that message is so persuasive and so real. And there's just so many funny move, moments in that movie. There's there's the great, great use of music. Also, Danny Elfman is having the time of his life. And then there's a working scale model of the town that they live near um, that becomes like the source of so much comedy. And I think that's just ingenious. And I would recommend that to people who are thinking, well, I don't really like horror movies, but I want to try it out. You know, go slow. Don't see something that you know is going to bother you. It's okay to be uncomfortable, but don't don't hit 11 right away. Maybe start with a two. You know, that that's, you don't want to un- get to the point where you can't unsee things. So, yeah. Now, if we want to go the opposite direction, 
There's also something like Alien. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that movie. And the advantage of that movie is that, to me, the horror is offset by the sheer bad assness of Ellen Ripley. She is phenomenal. And often, when I'm in a scary situation, like, she's one of the names I run through. I'm like, what would, what would Ripley do here? Get away from her, you bitch! When you see a character like that, particularly for me, a woman, but, you know, obviously your listeners will have people, you know, characters they resonate with. When you see them confronting something terrifying and not backing down, not giving up, that, that is one of the best spiritual moments for me. Because spiritual practice should give you strength. We live in a very complicated world. It's, there are many frustrations, many questions. And we, sometimes, even if you are the strongest person that you know, sometimes you need a little bucking up. And that's okay to admit. And by watching other people go through those same struggles, you gain a little extra. All right, you gain a little extra for yourself, and that's just fantastic. Yeah. So if you were to pick out maybe three films to recommend people as like a little primer, a little starter oh, on your that's horror. Oh, that's tough. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Anytime you have to narrow down, yes. it, it's always a difficult task. But if, if, you, yeah. if somebody were to say like, I'm not quite sure I get this notion of horror as spiritual yeah. practice, where might you say, all right, how about you start here okay. and then come back and talk to me later? Well, for starters, I think the best way to get into horror is to move kind of sideways from things that you already like. So if you really enjoy, you know, kind of high literature, Regency, Jane Austen, I'd recommend The Others with Nicole, Kid Nicole Kidman, since that's a haunted house period film, you know, that's just beautifully shot. And even if the scary parts of it make you jump, you can still, you know, look around and appreciate the the craft of the storytelling as well. You know, if you if you love science fiction, then you're in luck. There's so much crossover. And I had a lot of people tell me after the sermon, they said, oh, I, I would never watch a horror film. Uh, but, they, and that's fine. You know, if that's not what you're into, you don't have to do this. On YouTube, there are many short horror films, and I recommend, you know, seeing some of those. That's a good way to get started if you don't want to do an entire feature film. There's one that the movie Lights Out was based on, and the title of which unfortunately escapes me, but it's a two, it's like a five-minute film. It's supremely scary, but it, it and it just but it's a such an example of compact, efficient storytelling. I recommend the heck out of that. I would say if you haven't seen Beetlejuice, I'd recommend you go there. I'd say start, if you're really, really nervous, maybe go to a classic comedy. Uh, you know, the first movie, the first scary movie, and I put scary in quotes, that I plan to show my son, who's seven, is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Because all the monsters are there. They have You have some setup of, like, jump scares. But there's so much comedy. The whole, the whole scariness of the whole thing is completely, completely offset. And that's probably where I would start. You know, obviously, I wouldn't recommend showing your children, you know, really terrifying things. But you could also go to classic film. You know, I feel like there are some films that to be culturally literate, it would help. You know, Jaws is another good example of that because, you know, that movie completely changed the way we view the summer blockbuster. And even if, you know, you're, you're scared of the 
fake, admittedly very fake shark. You know, you can appreciate this movie for the type of storytelling that we see now. You can look, you know, I think that I think the human actors in it just do epic jobs. <laughs> I really enjoy many parts of this film, you know, and it, it's not ultimately so terrifying. Now, I know some people said, oh, I'll never go in the water again. Well, I, I don't. I don't think you have to worry about Jaws, you know, happening, you know, as long as you're careful. You do, don't do anything foolish. But um, the final film that I recommend to people is Get Out. Sir, can I see your license, please? Wait, why? Yeah, I have state ID. No, no, no. He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Yeah, why? That doesn't make any sense. Here. You don't have to give him your ID because you haven't done anything wrong. Baby, baby, it's okay. Come on. Anytime there is an incident, we have every right to That's ask. Cool. Ma'am, the... Everything all right, Ryan? Yeah, I'm good. Get that headlight fixed. And that mirror. Thank you, officer. And this one in particular for the current political situation we find ourselves in, particularly understanding the consequences of racism. For many white people, I think the idea that you are discriminated against in a certain way is alien to them. It's, Or they may say, well, you know, I'm they might say, well, no, that doesn't exist. I don't believe it because I've never experienced that. And what the film Get Out allows you to do is sort of see the consequences of that denial of racism. And it tackles all our primary fears, the fear of losing yourself, the fear of not being heard, the fear of, oh, man, the fear of, of people oppressing you in a very specific and disturbing body horror way. It's a violent film, but the violence feels it's not gratuitous. It's not it's not violence for the sake of violence. It feels earned in the context of the story. And honestly, the first few times it happened, I was cheering for the character to do that violence because we'd seen the stuff that was happening to him and was going to happen to him if he did not commit those acts of violence. And it was horrifying. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it to a lot of people. It's it's scary. Um, that's a good place to start. That's where I would start. Well, and that's a great one. That came out this year. So yes. it's a, a new film. And... Again, you're right. It taps into that loss of identity yes. as well, which is a terrifying thing in this sense of being invisible, yes. of not being seen. And, you know, in a certain way, it kind of ties back to the very origins of zombie films exactly. when you go back to the voodoo mm -hmm. tradition, because that was all about oppression and slavery exactly. and this sense of another person controlling you as yeah. opposed to the George Romero zombies, which yeah. are, you know, they've been bitten and infected yeah. or, yeah. and, you know, they crave human flesh, but it's not this other person kind of trying yeah. to control or oppress you. Exactly. And this actually, the, the interesting thing about Get Out is that it has a scientific veneer, but really mm -hmm. it boils down to that witchcraft idea of somehow we're going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't seen it, but it's uh, it's a really I thought it was a really unique twist and that Jordan Peele had some really fantastic ideas that played out really well on the big screen. And putting you in that other position, yes. giving you that point of view yeah. of someone who 
whose position you might not understand, like getting you to see something from a different point of view, which is yes. a spiritual thing as well. Absolutely. Like that's and that's the other great gift that we can give to ourselves is if we can understand another person's perspective. Put and literally, you know, we talk about putting ourselves in other people's shoes, but that's a hard thing to do. And often a work of fiction makes it more acceptable and easier to understand rather than, you know, listening to the news or, you know, reading reading the paper, which, you know, has has often the opposite effect. I think people just kind of shut down. Whereas in a story, it's like it's it's in the abstract and you can deal with it on a level that's not necessarily yourself and only later you can bring that closer to you and your own experience and, and, you know, synergize those two things. Well, and I think that's the great thing about pop culture is that there are messages, sometimes deliberate, sometimes unintentional, but there are messages in pop culture Mm -hmm. that can reach people who would not be reached by a sermon in a church or by a news article or by something that was very on point to trying to give you a message. Yeah. Oh, no, this is so true. Like I was I was I'm always amazed at how many people have strong feelings about Harry Potter. It can be and it's like it's all different aspects of that story that that that, you know, that time period and the universe and the rules for magic. People who I do not expect to have feelings about Harry Potter will see my T-shirt and they'll say, you know what I don't like? I don't like how Snape got treated. Or they'll say, well, like I've had one person say to me, she saw my Ravenclaw sweater and she's like, I don't like you. I'm a Slytherin. I was like, what? But that people feel that so deeply, you know, and then we ask ourselves, you know, this whole like, what house do you belong to? Well, what do you value in life? It's a really easy way to quickly delineate that. But then we get to deeper and more complicated questions like, are all Slytherins really born evil? Is being ambitious necessarily, you know, an evil trait? You know, how do we temper that? And, you know, why aren't there some Slytherins who were like, hey, we're not on board with this Draco Malfoy, like back off. But <laughs> that that the universality of that narrative, you know, is just fabulous. And the same thing for Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. that, that people feel that that particular narrative, the way it's told, and especially with the Peter Jackson films, appeals so universally because it puts everybody in that position, you know, and in, in, in many complicated moral positions of these characters, Frodo and Sam, even Boromir, that's as there's a guy who makes a bad decision and pays for it. Mm-hmm. But we still we still value him very greatly because a lot of people could understand his desire to take the ring for himself and use its power in service of his own people. A lot of people would make that choice, you know, no matter what the consequences were. But yeah, I love pop culture, and I'm hoping to do more sermons about it. Um, I'd love to bring in more comic book stuff, you know, since we, we're lucky enough to have Comic-Con here in San Diego, and I'm hoping I can do a Star Wars one, and just because it's it's not something, you know, it's throwaway entertainment. Most people think, oh, you know, I just see this, it doesn't matter, but then, you know, years later, you're still thinking about that one scene in Half-Blood Prince where Harry should have done this thing, right? <laughs> it's still happening, and it, yeah. It's still happening. Well, you mentioned like wearing a Harry Potter shirt. I, I have uh, this custom-made Star Wars dress that I love. And when people see it, like I have so many people just come up to me and just somebody will say like, may the force be with you yeah. or just like, oh, Star Wars. I, you know, I remember seeing that. And you get this mm-hmm. connection with people. And one of the things I, I was talking to my son, I said, you know, I always have fun when I wear this dress because 
total strangers walk up yes. to me and share some Star Wars memory with mm-hmm. me. Like, oh, you know, the dress is made from these sheets. Like, oh, my brother had those sheets. I remember them. <laughs> and, and we saw Star Wars when I was, you know, like 10 years old or whatever. But it's like, it, it, it creates this odd sense of community. It is fantastic, right? At least you have that shared bond with strangers. I mean, unless you're a Ravenclaw and they're Slytherin. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do in that case. There's there's very little we can do. But it that's the other thing. It creates that sense of community that I think a lot of people really would like to have. The internet is fantastic, and I love it. But it's not the same as meeting people in person or talking about the things you love. You know, and that's... When you see somebody in person, you know, usually the reason I'm so happy during Comic-Con, I just, I have a smile (laughs) plastered my face the entire time because I know these people, right? And they know my t-shirts and we get into, I get into the most random conversations with the most lovely people, you know, (laughs) over like the, the, the smallest thing we have in common, you know, and like the noticing of details or, you know, the, the debates and all this fun stuff and you know, horror movie fans, I've noticed it's the same way. Everyone has strong feelings on particular directors or, you know, which monster is the best or which, you know, Freddy versus Jason. Although I heard that confrontation was not that exciting after all. <laughs> or I have a friend who she doesn't watch any horror movies except the Alien and Predator franchises. And for Alien versus Predator, she was like, oh, I'm there. She was so excited. And I'm like, OK, you know, that's how she deals that's how she deals with, like, scary things, I think, is that she watches those movies and, you know, she's memorized most of them at this point. But they're almost a religious experience for her to go and, mm-hmm. you know, watch them and do that thing. So, Well, and Comic-Con is a mecca where we all make yes. a pilgrimage, too. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, I, I, I feel like I can tell the difference between the, the Comic-Con fans who've been going for a long time from the people who are only coming for maybe the Hollywood panels. It, mm. Because people who complain about waiting in line, I feel like on a certain level that's part of the charm of yeah. Comic-Con because you are guaranteed to be in line with someone who's as geeky as you are. Oh, yeah. And you're going to find, unless you go to the wrong panel, like you go to something where it's you true. don't actually like it's it, yeah. then you're going to be in line with people who you can't share values with. But, <laughs> you know, I was in the sh- a line for, I think, Shaun of the Dead when they had a panel or yeah. um, Spaced, I think is actually a panel for Spaced. And it's like, oh, yeah, so we can talk about all yeah. the episodes and all the little details and the <laughs> Easter eggs and, yes. you know, and a couple hours in line is yeah. not that bad. No, some of the best conversations I've ever had have been on the trolley with people <laughs> in costume, you know, about like, you know, what their hopes for the day are. I love that, you know, or... Or just seeing, you know, people in, in costumes doing paperwork, like Batman has to sign this release form. Like, you know, that's that's <laughs> wonderful. But yeah, I've met such wonderful people and we've had we've had such amazing talks. I once I was in line for the Doctor Who panel a couple of years ago and this guy introduced himself to me. He said, I'm he said, I'm from England and I love comics so much I named my daughter Storm. And I was I was like, dude, you're my kind of dad. And we had the nicest conversation for that, you know, 45 minutes we were waiting. <laughs> and it's it's one of my happiest memories. And the same thing, you know, goes for horror movie, too, that like I was there with you in that theater. You know that I screamed, you know, at that particular jump scare or when we went and saw it. My husband knows that it was me going, fuck, 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 like every 10 seconds <laughs> at particular scenes because I was so worked up, you know, but that's that's a common thing that we share and that we both remember and, 
you know, he, a lot of people don't want to admit their vulnerabilities, but that's ultimately what you end up doing. Mm-hmm. When you meet someone who shares the same values as you and who likes the same pop culture as you, you're opening yourself up in a way that most of the time we don't dare. You know, that, yeah, geek geekdom and fandom and nerdy things are more cool now, but there's still a stigma, you know, to being out about it all the time. But when you attend a movie like, you know, that you're a fan of, or if you go to an event like that and you you spend time with other people who are like you, with your tribe, then that primal part of you is satisfied. And it's it's just so good. And I think it's it's an akin to a spiritual practice. You know, it doesn't have to be necessarily religion or Christian God, but it's a human thing. And it, it makes us whole in ways that are really important that we don't always get. We've been talking mostly about recent films or contemporary yeah. films. You did mention the Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes. But I wanted to ask, how do you feel about those universal horror films, the original oh, ones like Frankenstein? Too. How do you... I mean, oh. those were great. Oh, those are wonderful. And uh, I'm a sucker for black and white. So mm. I'm... Yeah, okay. No, it's it's amazing. You know, when I first watched the uh, the uh, Murnau Nosferatu, I think we did it that as a double feature with Shadow of the Vampire, which is mm, a really... Yes. That's a good double feature. Um, even though it wasn't particularly scary. And, you know, we, things that frighten us have changed. You could, you could still feel the presence of that film kind of radiating at you, you know, when when Nosferatu stands up in that mm-hmm. coffin with his clawed hands crossed on his chest. I, when I show that to my students in humanities class, because we do talk about, or no, I did it in English this time because we were reading Dracula for Halloween or an excerpt. You know, I said, you may, this might not seem that scary to you, but think about for people who'd never seen this image before. It had only, up until that point, it had only been in their imagination and maybe like one illustration that went with the text. And think about seeing that if you'd never seen a movie before and how frightening it would be. And I think it still has a lot of potency, mm-hmm. right? That that it's, that it's yeah, it's, it's one vision of this creature. And yes, it's in black and white and, you know, without a sound, without dialogue. But it's still, there's still something about it, that shadow creeping along the wall that, it's, it's right there in the fields, if you want to put it that way. It's right there in that, that zone of, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this. Even though you know it's not that sophisticated and you know not that frightening, but it still appeals to that sense. And yes, the Frankenstein has produced so many mm-hmm. classic parodies and so forth. And yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like this, we recently did a few years ago... Um, Universal Horror Series, where we showed nice. all the Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, uh, The Mummy, all those yes. films. And they're just such amazing films. And they they really do, especially Frankenstein. Frankenstein really just has so much like nuance to mm-hmm. it and levels of interpretation that yes. it seems like a great film to kind of start people off on for horror. That would be a good place to start. And then I would urge people, if they haven't read the Mary Shelley, to mm-hmm. go there and, and check that out. It's a very thoughtful piece of writing yeah, in many ways. And uh, the monster, the creature, is is actually a really thoughtful creature. He reads, uh, he reads Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. you know, to gain his knowledge of human nature when that's for better or for worse. But um, this conflict, you know, this conflict of the idea of something that you create is wrong. 
All right, there's that. I also love that Mary Shelley apparently wrote this while spending time with her husband, Percy Blythe Shelley and Lord Byron. And knowing what we do about Lord Byron in particular, I would probably pen a horror novel at some point because that guy, that must have gotten really old really fast. So I can understand why she wanted to tell his story. But I think she also does something uniquely feminist, which is to make a male character and a, probably a male audience sympathize with um, a fear of childbirth. Right. Because the idea that, you know, Dr. Frankenstein creates this mm-hmm. thing, which then turns out to be wrong somehow. You know, it, that's another primal fear we have, particularly surrounding women's bodies and and, you know, child child birthing and the idea that something that, that grew inside of you is wrong or that you have this alien thing in there. And it's it's profoundly it's it's, it's a profoundly disquieting idea. So, yeah, that would be a great place to start, too. Yes, absolutely. So you have plans to do more of these sermons? I sure do. So I sure it, do. Tell people where they can find information. If they decide that they want to maybe go to one of these, where can they find information so, about what you do? Um, I belong to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of San Diego. That's UUFSD.org. Uh, these upcoming sermons are usually put up by the month. Um, I will try... And update my Facebook page. If you go to Catherine Buffington, I'll try to put the public entries of what I'm doing next so you can come and see that. Um, and, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll do a couple more. I'd really love to do some comic book stuff. I'd like to talk about Six Feet Under in more detail, like all of these things. I have a lot of ideas. And if you want to leave people with one kind of notion about this, what I mean, what what do you want people to take away from this idea of – horror movies as spiritual practice. What would you like them to take away from this? Mm-hmm. To do they should they go and see some films? Should they rethink some of the things they've already seen? What kind of uh, takeaway should they have? Well, okay. So obviously if you aren't gonna like a horror film, if you know in your in your bones that it's gonna be too intense or too scary, you know, don't don't rush out and subject yourself to something hard. But if you're thinking, I don't like how frightened I am all the time. I think there are some really great places where horror films would give you the opportunity to both purge that bad emotion and move forward from it. And, you know, make that lateral move. If, you know, if you like one genre that's not horror, try to find a horror, you know, crossover, because chances are you're going to find one. There's a ton of those things. Uh, If you are a scaredy cat, there is no shame in reading IMDb to find out the ending or the level of violence. There's also a website dedicated to Does the Dog Die? And if you're like me and you're tenderhearted, maybe you need to know that before you go into a movie. Okay. And again, no shame. But confronting what makes us afraid is it can only be a good thing. And it doesn't have to be the most intense thing ever. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I went to the midnight showing of this film that's my worst fear. You know, don't, don't, don't do zero to 60 in 10 seconds. But getting to a point where your worst fear doesn't define your actions or hold you back is a really good goal. And that's what I think horror movies can do for you is give you a setting in which you're in control. You can get up and leave. Unlike real life fears that we have where life is happening, a horror movie, you you can get up and leave. You can get up and do other stuff. It's all on you. So take control of that fear and don't let it run your life. That's what I would say to people. Can they also get a sense of values? Oh, absolutely. You know, what do you, what's important to you? 
how, you know, and even the question, what would I do in a similar situation? This is empowering too, right? Because we know the situation isn't real, but we can begin to prepare for dealing with that level of trauma, okay? And not necessarily assuming it's going to come and not catastrophizing, but just saying, okay, you know, if there was something akin to that, how would I move forward? What would be important to me? You know, the question that I find people talking about right now is if the fires came, what, what items would I rescue from my house? And this is the same form of that question. You know, what would you do? What would you do? You know, zombie apocalypse, where are you going to hide out? You know, I have friends who have some really detailed answers. Like they've thought about it and, you know, it's so much, so much time has gone into that plan. But by not, you know, succumbing to that fear and just being like, oh, I'd roll over in a ditch and cry, you know, you've moved past it. And that's a really useful, worthwhile thing. And knowing what you value and what is important to you or where you stand on the side of morals, this also helps you define nebulous things, you know, in life. And it can, it can help you identify people who might be toxic. It can help you identify concepts that bother you. And it can help you get at the why. Why are these things important? Why, you know, are these values important to me? Why does this one ideology appeal to me? And why does another one not? You know, because thinking about that, only leads us to a greater understanding of ourselves in the world. And ultimately, that's what makes life really awesome. Well, I want to thank you for oh. talking to me. We could have talked for hours more I know. because there's so many films. <laughs> I know. Like every time you mention one, I go, oh, but there's I that know. other one. I know. Well, that's... thank you for having me. I, Yeah. And if anyone wants to come and chat horror movies, I'm always up for that. <laughs> and I'm also up for anime and comics and so many other things. And I really believe there is, for everyone out there... There is a comic, there mm-hmm. is a horror film, there is really any genre film, okay? And there is a book. There are all of these things that will appeal to you. You just have to be willing to put in the time to find it. Or and talk to the right person. Or to talk to the right person. you in the right direction. Exactly. And that's the great thing about comic book stores. Oh, right, yes. Is that <laughs> you can talk to people who know their stuff and can point exactly. you in the right direction. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was awesome. That was Catherine Buffington. She's a worship associate at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of San Diego. And we've been talking about movies, horror movies in particular, as spiritual practice. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you're feeling generous this holiday season, consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or just recommending it to a friend. A personal recommendation is the best way to get new listeners for the show. You are the best advertisement we have. You can also donate to support the show at kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. Cinema Junkie and I will be taking a short break for the holidays, but we'll return in January with an episode on film noir. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays. Considering the theme of this show, I'll go out with this inspirational holiday tune. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. Oh.